from the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I am with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Hello, Denise, Curriculum Specialist Pope. Oh, we're going to talk it, curriculum today, it, huh? Isn't it impressive how many different things you are <laughs> yeah. that I'm able to get in there? I'm very impressed with myself, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoy this 30 minutes of self self Okay, so here, here's the question for you. Uh, you're starting to prepare some unit, some lesson. How, how do you decide what to teach? Oh, my gosh, Dan. That's actually a harder question than you probably even know because how you decide what to teach depends on a lot of different factors. So are there any standards that you have to meet if you're teaching at a public school, if you're teaching at a, an independent or a private school, they often have their own student learning outcomes that you have to meet. What's going to be interesting and engaging to the kids? What's going to be the best way to scaffold this learning through what projects are you going to do? Um, what performances? How am I going to know that it's actually working? So, so the what to teach depends on a lot of different factors. So it's actually not that easy of a question. So, so tell me about standards. If I'm in an English department at a university, I imagine I spend a lot of time comp- uh, competing with my colleagues saying Shakespeare must be covered. And the other colleagues are like Dante must be covered. <laughs> I mean, what these standards, like where do they come from? Well, so universities are a little bit different, but for K-12 schools, this has changed over the years, obviously. But right now we have something called the Common Core and they are Experts in the fields have gotten together and have been asked to agree and kind of duke it out on to what should be the standards for for the nation in different subject areas. So in English, it's called English language arts, and they have experts. And again, you have to think about what what do little kids need, what do kindergarten, first, second graders need, and then, you know, will those standards hold as they get through to the high school level? But what you're not going to see is you must teach To Kill a Mockingbird or you must teach Shakespeare. That that's content specific, and what they've been moving away from are that those very specific content because standards. It's, because it's too political, or it's too well, too local. Think of history. Okay, yeah. H- history gets longer every single day, every single year. So <laughs> so, um, are you going to teach Trump? Are you going to teach Vietnam? Are you going to teach uh, the the Gulf War? You know, we have textbooks that don't that end before some of these things have even happened. So it, the content doesn't quite work for that level from just a real practical level of if we're building these standards, they're going to become, you know, absolutely mm. <laughs> outdated mm. very, very soon. Mm. But more importantly, they realize that um, it's in a world where you can Google just about anything, having content standards where you're actually learning uh, particular content or reading particular books isn't going to be as useful as the skills you need to know what to do with that content. So ideally, and this is very controversial and our guests can talk about this, it's supposed to be a focus on sort of the skills you need hmm. in that discipline. Hmm. Is, is that? No, it, it just kind of surprises me. It's like at one point there was a movement that these are the hundred facts that every, every American needs to know. It was just absolutely content, no skill. And the argument was 
as kids move from school to school, if you know they know these facts, they'll be able to move more easily and, and shared facts make a common cultural fabric. And whereas there, There's this still is, people a, who, who will argue yeah, that. Yeah. There's still groups out there that will argue that. I think, you know, for me personally as an English teacher, for me to get my head around that someone could go through an entire K-12 learning experience and have never, let alone read Shakespeare, but even heard of Shakespeare, boy, I have to, that's hard for me to handle, and yet I have to be okay with that. In your classroom, you get to make that choice. Well, actually, when I first started teaching, I was only allowed to teach what was in the book room. So if uh-huh. they didn't have, you know, I was handed Romeo well, and a, Juliet that, and To Kill a Mockingbird. That's very practical. <laughs> it's, very, <laughs> that's <a> very practical. <laughs> it's very practical. But if your book room does, is, it has only authors who are white, uh, you know, dead white men, which is not To Kill a Mockingbird, I understand that, but you're very limited. Yeah. And so now, boy, what are we supposed to teach Given the realm of diversity right. and, and all of that, it's, this is a big question. What to teach is a really big, tough question. And fortunately, our guest, <laughs> whom you referred to as our guest, <laughs> he's actually your very close colleague, Kenji. Yes. So he's going to help us with ELA. Thank goodness. So uh, Kenji Okuda, he's a professor emeritus at Stanford. Kenji's early career, he was trained as a linguist, and then he moved into education. And uh, he spent a lot of his career researching and teaching at Stanford, but he took a short break to help start a new university, the University of California, Merced, as the inaugural dean of humanities, sciences, and arts, I believe. It was must have been the department of what, – what's not in there? It's social sciences. Social sciences. Is humanities missing. and arts. Oh, 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 yeah, I see. It's pretty much – that's everything. Okay. Well, there's natural sciences, there's engineering. We're education. Natural science. There was no education there. Oh. So Kenji worked a lot on education standards, including helping states and districts prepare for the Common Core and next generation standards, particularly paying attention to how this impacts English language learners. And one final fact that Kenji is an avid rock climber. And I may return to this, uh, but not about the time you fell, but about something Ooh. more more enjoyable. So, Kenji, give us a behind-the-scenes look at how standards happen. I mean, you've, you've been in the room, right? What does that look mm-hmm. like? Is it scary? Is it messy? Is it contentious? There's a long history to this. It's, it's uh, more recent than the dinosaurs learning to fly. But, <laughs> um, but the 80s, I would say, was a time when education was real, you know, which is basically what's in the curriculum is, is still a local enterprise. Uh, states are intermediary and then there's a the federal uh, role. And a lot of this was trying to think about how to bring more coherence and more uniformity across districts within states, across states within the, the nation. Um, and a lot of this was framed around American economic competitiveness. You the know, argument was yeah. leaving it up to local decision makers was leading to poor quality and therefore um, less Well, that, that we need to raise the level of, of, of achievement uh, educationally. And how to do that in a system in which you have 15,000 districts, 50 states, and other other territories and so forth, and how to – it's a little bit like pushing string or how do, how do you kind of – you know, it's because we don't have a top-down uh, right. federal system, right? right? So how do you get this? And, and so a lot of the arguments around standards was um, around trying to bring coherence and using standards to – bring coherence to the curriculum, to what happens in teacher education, what happens in professional development, what happens around 
assessment of student learning. And the idea of standards was, well, we can't really control, you know, what districts teach and, and nor should we, but uh, how do we bring more coherence to this? This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we're speaking with Kenji Hakuda, a professor emeritus here at Stanford, who's worked a lot on education standards and the Common Core. From a federal perspective, you know, the feds have been giving money to states and to districts since the, the 60s. It basically, civil the federal agenda here is around civil rights and reducing inequality. A lot of this was around money and how to sort of account for the money. What, how, what can states do with it? What can districts do with it? Part of the, the shift to standards was part of the deregulatory movement during the Reagan era, which is essentially to focus less on inputs, what districts should be doing, uh, what states should be doing, to focusing on outcomes based on these standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, using evidence mm-hmm. and just the name Common Core. They were thinking, what, are, what is common across that everybody's going to need when they, or most people are going to need when they move into their careers or their colleges? So standards are uh, a federal lever to uh, bring civil rights and entitlements and also raise our sights to what should be taught. And these standards are also accountability on outcomes. It's probably the accountability that has the most significance. And the way that accountability is found is through the tests. And so is it the standards that drive it or the tests that often can't match the ambition of the standards? Well, it should be. And for the most part, it are the standards. Uh, one minor correction, Dan, is, yeah. is that the Common Core are state-led. They're not federal. Right. The organizations that, that spearheaded the development of the Common Core uh, state standards, as they're called, is uh, were the National Governors Association and the Council of Chief State School Officers. So these are kind of state-led initiatives with input from their local districts mm-hmm. and other stakeholders. And it's really the federal government is really using those standards as part of its accountability. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Kenji Hakuda, a professor emeritus here at Stanford, about how you make the standards and what, what we mean by Common Core. And Kenji, I know that you worked specifically with the Council of Chief State School Officers on this. So let's go back to that question of... Just who who are they? Just briefly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, do, do I live next yeah. to one? <laughs> you have one as yeah, your it, neighbor. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a nonprofit association uh, that represents the interests of state chief school officers. So these these would be the state commissioner of education, or depending on the state, they're called different things, but they're basically the chief education person for the state and their you know deputies and and leaders. And so they offer support for states implementing programs. They also speak on behalf of the states whenever Congress reauthorizes federal legislation and so forth. So they they were quite instrumental in the development of these standards. So let me put this into some context, right? Because there's there's parents all over the United States who are sort of railing against, why does my kid need to learn this as opposed to this? Or what happened to my favorite unit and that they no longer teach? And why does everything look different? And they always hear the teachers and the administrators blame Common Core. Well, we can't do that anymore because of Common Core. So who is this person who is causing me to, you know, have this issue with my kid as to why they have to know X, Y, Z? You had a role in that. 
<laughs> how no, much the, the how much power? Are, yeah. Yeah. I mean, standards are really. I think they're they're reified. They're made into an arm of big government or something like that. Uh, but they really are developed by the stakeholders. They are developed by educators. Most of the people who wrote the Common Core were uh, were educators uh, working with uh, representatives of of parents and so forth. It is a you know very much a messy enterprise, which is part of why it's also quite messy. It's not. Right, because uh, pe- how do yeah. you how do you mm-hmm. get people to agree? What happened in the room when they didn't agree? Post-it notes, <laughs> <laughs> or when you said, That's "Gosh, like parking lots." You know, <laughs> that, uh, is yeah. this you? You looked at it and said, "Okay, mm-hmm. English language learners are going to just die here, like with this one, right?" I mean, what what is mm-hmm. what is your particular role? Yeah, a big part of what I do is around providing, you know, thinking about access to the standards for English learners and equity and so forth, and part of why the Common Core was exciting for those of us who really want to give opportunities for English learners was that the standards are framed in a way that they kind of privilege what kids can do with language around content. Uh, so uh, in, in math, for example, uh, people talk about understanding the reasoning of others and articulating you know, your arguments and so forth in math, explaining your reasoning, uh, which are really language practices. Uh, so it's not really about sort of knowing, having specific mathematical skills. And this applies for all kids, but it's especially important for, for English learners. Uh, so the standards kind of provided a kind of a different lighting, so to speak, on the landscape of, of learning to privilege what language does in the learning process. And by doing that, it sort of showed what English learners really need to do, not just to learn English, obviously that's, that's an important thing for them to do. Uh, many would argue for them to develop their other language or their native language as well. But in addition to that, the most important thing is, is learning math, learning you know, language arts and so forth. And you were mm-hmm. there to make sure that that was going to work for all learners, including the English language learners. That's, well, I, I was Providing input. You're, you're uh, I was one, of many, one, one yeah. of many people doing this. Yes, right. This is Schools In mm-hmm. with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will have more with Kenji Hakuda and Common Core Standards and the impact on English language learners next here on SiriusXM Insight 121. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Kenji Hakuda, Professor Emeritus here at Stanford, who was part of the Common Core and Next Generation Science Standards composition team. It would help me if you gave me a contrast. So we have standards now that are focusing on what people can do with language in content areas. What was it before? And particularly, how did this impact English language learners? There is a separate set of standards that have been developed and that are required by federal law, actually, for English learners uh, called English language proficiency standards. And it's actually contained in a separate title of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And by law, actually, it's, it's supposed to focus on listening, speaking, reading, and writing skills. Prior to the Common Core, that was basically interpreted as uh, grammar, vocabulary, uh, discrete language skills. Those standards are expected to be correspond or aligned to the content standards. 
because the Common Core privileged language, English language proficiency standards also, when states revisited them and revised them, underwent a shift to privilege the uses of language during content instruction. And that's been one of the biggest challenges for English learners has been kind of separating language from content. So, you know, kids may be, especially if you're a newcomer student or just beginning to learn English, you might be in 45 minutes or an hour of English as a second language instruction that's dedicated to that. And then the rest of the time, they were just placed in regular classes and content without their language needs being attended to. And what the Common Core did was, in a sense, create a bridge between the content standards and the language standards. How does that execute? Now the 45 minutes when they're learning English, they're also learning vocabulary that's useful to the other classes? Uh, Vocabulary and how to use language Mm. in ways that support the learning of the content. So Mm. if if you're expected in the math standards to um, explain your reasoning and understanding the reasoning of others, that really means that you're supposed to have these collaborative conversations around content matter in math or in other subject areas. So then this is really the role of standards is that it moves just not just from how tests are constructed to measure how kids do this, but also change the way in which materials are developed, the ways in which teachers are given training and professional development. So one way that this might happen, you can walk in the typical classroom, a teacher have always tried to say, okay, turn to your partner and talk. Uh, But what this says is not just talk, you know, have a collaborative conversation about about the content. And so I think that's... Denise, you and I kind of miss the standards. (laughs) (laughs) We we don't collaborate well. No, but you could see how this would be really hard for a kid who's, you know, on top of learning English, and I'm kind of shy and I'm sort of afraid to talk out loud. They're making me talk out loud about my science or my math. And I'm not 100% comfortable with that. It doesn't mean that I don't know the math or the science either, right? But because now this is a requirement, mm-hmm. gosh, I'm doing double, triple duty. That's hard. Right. We started with the possibility that some parents and teachers are unhappy with the new standards. Is it possible that we've made standards that nobody can achieve? They're just too hard to execute? Mm. When the standards movement came about in the 80s, there was a, a lot of talk about opportunity to learn standards. So Mm -hmm. we talked about content standards, about performance standards, and then there was the opportunity to learn. But because opportunity to learn standards implied resources, that kind of politically didn't uh, didn't quite make it. But I, I do think that's really the importance of standards, which is it's not just aspirational. It really is setting a, a target and to say the system has to move continuously in, in that direction. And that's absolutely right. What, you know, what happened uh, when assessments were developed aligned to the Common Core or to the language proficiency standards uh, that are aligned to the Common Core, the percentage of students who are proficient, who met the bar, dropped, right, right as, as we expected. But that's, take that to be sort of a motivational message rather than, okay, therefore, let's go and shoot the messenger. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we're talking with Kenji Hakuda about all things standard, a kind of behind-the-scenes look at, at standards and Common Core and the effect on English language learners. So Kenji's career has sort of been highlighted by being not the early adopter, but sort of the early person who realized this was a place for action. 
You know, so from linguistics to second language acquisition, big move, forerunner in online professional development. And one other was starting a, uh, a new university, which is a big deal. So did you bump into issues of standards when you, when, as dean at UC Merced? Mm. Did, did you like sort of say, or is this just faculty and this faculty governance to determine standards and my jobs to determine budget? Because you, yeah. you started it from scratch, mm-hmm. right? I just want people to understand, like, yes. there was not a university there. And now we're getting that university. was definitely the excitement. But as anybody who's been part of the University of California system or part of academia knows, there are these very impl- implicit standards for what a University of California campus should have. Much like a, you know any research one university is expected to have certain standards. They're pretty abstract standards, but they're around you know things like faculty productivity and you know there's an academic personnel manual. And then the University of California, and so, in many ways, while the mission of the of the campus was to serve, especially the Central Valley, which is the most underserved part of California, other than the Imperial Valley, uh, with a lot of English language learners, with a huge number of English language learners, and really not much of a college going culture there in the in the Central Valley, uh, so that's why it was placed there. And so, you know, you you'd kind of want the campus to be adapted to that mm-hmm. that context. Uh, but essentially, it's a little bit like putting Starbucks in the Central Valley. Starbucks kind of look like Starbucks regardless of whether you're in, you know, mm. Silicon Valley or the Central Valley. Uh, there are certain kind of franchising pieces and, and that's, you know, that's pretty uh, – it's pretty dominant in in the culture, uh, and it's also uh, in the faculty culture of what you what you create. So so I think um, uh, in in that sense, I think uh, it was a you know it was, it was exciting to be part of a you know starting a campus, uh, but it's also it made me realize how uh, uh, ingrained in our academic culture our our standards are for what academic excellence really means. Uh, That said, the great thing about University of California uh, at Merced uh, is that it was very oriented towards uh, student support for first-generation college-going students. Uh, Being a small campus really helped. Uh, When we first started, there were about somewhere shy of eight or somewhere just above 800 students. Mm Uh, now they're you know uh, six seven thousand students I guess uh, it's growing it'll right. be twenty six thousand students I guess ultimately in the plan uh, so that you know means that that'll be become a fairly impersonal <laughs> campus in which it'll be a struggle uh, but at least having a culture in which you're really paying attention to uh, students who for whom uh, there are going to be many issues having to do with uh, you know coming from families where where there, is, you know, there isn't a, a, a college-going uh, culture, uh, it, those students feel feel supported. So I see a theme in Kenji's career, which is sort of the protector of the English language learner, and he did it through working with the Council of Chief State Officers and working with uh, the kids at Merced. It's it's a nice role. Uh, it's very good. So let's see if he can fit whether it fits. Let me test your hypothesis. Uh, so, Kenji, both you and I like to hike, uh, and it has to have some sort of benefit, like taking kids to the outdoors. 
Uh, can you put your finger on it, what the benefit is, the lasting benefit? And we'll see whether he brings up an answer that refers to English language learners. If he does, you are correct. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think a lot of this is uh, the, the left foot in front of the right foot philosophy. Um, that, you know, when you're going uh, up, you know, up, up over a big pass, you sort of, it's, it's painful and it's a grunt, uh, but you sort of keep putting one foot in, the, in front of the other and eventually you get there. And I, I do think that um, uh, in education, we probably hold uh, unrealistic expectations of how quickly kids can, you know, learn English or how you know, um, how quickly you, remediation could happen, so to speak, if that's the right word. Um, but I, I do think that it's sort of, you've got to keep, you've got to keep moving. <laughs> and unless you keep moving, uh, your, you know, your things will stay the same. I, I can't decide if Denise wins. I'm going to take, the, I'm going I'm to call it a personal victory. Yeah, but the fact that we can use hiking as an analogy for uh, learning a second language and was to, good. To keep it good. going. Yeah. Keep it going. Thank you so much, Kenji. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.